Well, good morning. My name is Nate Arnold, and uh, I have the privilege of preaching God's Word to us this morning and uh, being back here among you. And I always enjoy coming here, and I especially enjoy the music, and not just the music itself, but the songs and the, the great picks, the words uh, are really uplifting and really focus on Christ. This morning, I'm going to be preaching uh, a little differently than I normally do. I normally go verse by verse, or I pick a thought, or a pericope, as the fancy term for it, in the Scripture, and I normally work my way down that. This morning, I'm not quite going to do that. I'm going to preach all, the, all of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, and I just gave you a selection out of those that covered a specific thing that I want to talk about this morning. So I'm going to be sweeping through those, and most of you will know the story, and I don't think you'll get hung up in that. Uh, if you haven't read Genesis chapters 1 through 3, it's four pages in my large print Bible, so it's fairly easy and, and straightforward for you. You'll be able to get through that quickly. But these passages that we're looking at this morning, they basically set up the story that's contained in the rest of Scripture. From this point on, this story will kind of echo down the canyons of time and come to us and we'll see all the metaphors that are applied and all the things that Christ, that Christ has done that are based back into what we're going to talk about this morning. And these three chapters, they describe creation, they describe God's covenant with Adam, they describe the breaking of the covenant and God's response to all those parties that are involved in the breaking of the covenant. And these passages also demonstrate that God is so sovereign and so majestic that we can have absolute confidence in the truth that He speaks and the promises that He makes to us. We can have absolute confidence in that. And the title of our sermon this morning is The Majestic God Who Cannot Be Thwarted. Thwarted is an old word, and it means whose purposes can't be turned aside or he can't be stopped. He's more powerful than a speeding locomotive. He can't be thwarted in that sense. And I would like to begin by looking at our text today through the eyes of the Hebrews. And I kind of need to set this up in your mind a little bit for you so that we're looking at it like we would hear it for the very first time when Moses wrote this to the children of Israel. When he wrote this to the Hebrew children. Now understand that this is a very auditory society. In other words, it means that they listened mostly to people who spoke or when things were read, they weren't read privately like you and I do. They were read aloud and they were meant, and they would listen for verbal markers in the text. And they would catch those as they're repeated over and over in the text. And they would be very sensitive to those things. Where today we're more of a reading society, or even moving towards a visual or video type society. They were completely different from us in that sense. And there's a little comprehensive, because of this, there's a little comp what I call a comprehensive movement in the text. And what I mean by that is they would have understood a lot more about the basic text that was being written to them than we do because everything had just happened to them. Everything was a real visceral 
feeling to them. They would, they would get it. It would have a much larger impact. So as we, as we begin our, our sermon today, there'll be that. And then there'll come a time in the sermon where I think we both have an equal understanding of the text. Where the things that affect them and would have impacted them affect us and truly impact us at a kind of a cellular level. And then beyond that, there will come a time in the sermon that we have a better understanding than they would because we're looking back on this piece of text. So is everybody with me thus far? So let's talk a minute about who Moses is writing to. Moses is writing to people who had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years, the Scripture records in Exodus uh, chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. And to help you wrap your mind around that, that's slightly longer than the first Europeans came to America and began to colonize America until now. Kind of help you get the scope. And if we Americans are affected by our history and by that time and by that group of people over that great a period of time, they would be affected also by being in Egypt for 430 years. They would have really connected with some things in Egypt, even if they were Hebrews, even if they had come through a long line of the promises, they would have still been steeped in the things of Egypt. And what kind of things do you think they would be steeped in? The benefits of an organized society, right? Egypt was very organized. The food, the food wouldn't be strange to them, you know. It wouldn't be uh, like they were showing up at some restaurant and eating some strange critter. They, they would really get the, the food and how to, how to order at restaurants. They would get the government, the bureaucracy. They would know how to move in and out of the bureaucracy and, and take care of their normal day-to-day business. Uh, commerce, the same way. They knew how things were bought and sold in Egypt. The thought processes of the Egyptians, how the Egyptians thought of them and how they thought of the Egyptians. They were very well steeped in this. And this is who Moses is writing to. And last but not least, they would have really felt the security of living, and this is something we can identify with possibly, the most, they're living in the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. There was a lot of security in living in Egypt because they was bad and they knew it. And they had the army to back it up. So all these things kind of uh, uh, were, they were immersed in. But as slaves, unlike us, they were slaves in a kingdom. In a kingdom. And that's really foreign to the way we think. Really, really foreign. And they would have understood what it meant for a sovereign to rule every aspect and every facet of your life. And they would have understood that to aggravate or to go against the king meant certain death. These people got a grip on that. And not only death for you, but possibly death for your family and all your friends and anybody you hung out with. That's, they, they understood that relationship to a sovereign where we literally in our country can thumb our nose at the President of the United States and nothing really happens to us. If you did that to Pharaoh, you were a dead man or a dead woman. And it was, it was not healthy to say the least. So they had been slaves in this kingdom. And like us, I think, 
as we get ready to go into our story, they would have wondered, why is the world the way it is? Why do I struggle with sin? Why, does, why can't I get along with people? Why are people mean? You know, you got hashtag mean people. Uh, and why, why are people that way? And, and why even I? Why can't I do what I'm supposed to do? Why is everything so miserable? And, and why do we struggle with, the, with these kinds of things? But in contrast to us, they really had first-hand knowledge of the actions that God had done in the land of Egypt. Now remember, they had gone down to Egypt, and this is kind of a long intro, I know, but they had gone down to Egypt, 70 people. The Scripture records at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, 70 people had arrived in Egypt, and they had grown to the point where Pharaoh himself was very concerned about these people, and Pharaoh said, hey, we've got to put in some kind of uh, anti-growth program here, some kind of population control. And he began to tell the midwives, he said, let's kill the firstborn males and you can let the, the ladies live. And that's the way we'll do population control. Along comes Moses. Then Moses has his issues. Moses goes, so for 80 years, they've possibly been dealing with population control also. Think of that. These are things that they really struggle with. And they would have seen the plagues. These people that Moses is writing to would have seen the plagues. And it would have literally been across the street for them. This side of the street, the land of Goshen, was good. Across the street, in the land of Egypt, it was not so hot over there. And they would have watched all the plagues and they would have seen the dialogue that went on between Moses and Pharaoh and, and all the things that Pharaoh did and all the terrible things that happened to Pharaoh. And they would have been alive the night that the Passover occurred. And they would have heard the, the screams of people and the wails of people as everyone who did not have the blood over their doorposts their firstborn died. And they would have experienced being just pushed. The Bible says they were thrust out of Egypt. People were like, get out of here. Take this, take that. Take this gold. Take anything I got. Take my cow. Take my donkey. Get out of here. You're killing us. You're literally killing us. Get out of here. And they would have experienced that. These people who Moses is writing this story to. And then the Red Sea would have parted for them. They would have been pushed up uh, against the Red Sea. They would have seen the army of Pharaoh coming after them. And they would have buckled. And then they would have seen the rescue of God. The big pillar of fire and the darkness on the camp of, of Egypt. And then they, the sea would have parted and they would have gone across. And they would have turned back and watched God just drown the army of the entire the entire army of the, of the strongest nation on the planet at the time. These are the things that they would have experienced. These are the things that would have been going on. And lastly, they would have been at the foot of Mount Sinai. These people that Moses is writing Genesis to, they would have already been at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they would have seen the mountains smoking and burning and 
lightning and thundering and all kinds of stuff going on and great fear. And the Bible records that they actually heard the voice of God. This is the people that Moses is writing to. And Moses begins to write to these folks in Genesis 1-3. through And he begins to explain to them who the God is that they serve. Who exactly this is whom they serve. And he lets them know that all that terrible and awesome stuff that you just saw and that you just went through and you saw God do and you heard God and you saw these powerful things. He says that's basically like flicking a flea to God. And Moses doesn't start there. He starts with the creation story. And it's an amazing story. And he begins with the days of creation. And we'll go through them real quickly. But the first thing, remember, these people are attuned to seeing a king and his actions. And the first thing that God does, He creates light. And then we've got it. Hey, an important thing to God is light. <laughs> it's, it's very important. It's the first thing, first action the king takes. And, wow, okay, it's the God of light. And, and they would have began to, to understand that. And Moses would have continued. He says, hey, God makes the heavens and the earth. He separates the waters above from beneath. And then the next day, He separates the waters from the dry land and He causes plants to come to pass. And then the next day, He creates the great luminaries in the sky to track time. And He said the next day, He creates uh, the... Uh, Excuse me, he separates the seas and the land. I got that backwards. And then he uh, creates animals. And they would have listened to these verbal markers in the text. We don't have time to read them. But over and over again, the text says that they would reproduce after their own kind. After their own kind. After their own kind. After their own kind. Until you get to man. And then, God says, we're going to make man in our own image. In the image of God, He made them male and female. And they would have paused. And they would have said, whoa, what's going on here? And then they would have seen that God put man in charge. He says, you're in charge. And have dominion over the earth. And be fruitful and multiply. And that's that's different than all the other animals. And when the king puts you in charge, you're in charge. You're really in charge. And they were used to dealing with kings. And when the king puts you in charge, you're in charge. And not only are you in charge, but you're responsible to the king. And you're responsible for your actions and how you deal and how you do to the king. And they would have grasped that the verses we were read today was actually a treaty, a covenant. And as a matter of fact, we call this the Adamic covenant. You say, duh, Nate. It was with Adam, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But it's the Ad Adamic covenant. And they would have grasped that because they were used to dealing with kings. They were used to seeing how kings interacted and how kings worked with vassals. They would have got it right off where it takes us a little while to process through that. They would have seen that all the parts of a covenant are there. That the parties 
the promises, the conditions, the penalty, and the covenant sign. All the things that involve a covenant and a treaty are found in the passages that you were read today. And it would have stuck with them. It would have jumped out to them where it doesn't necessarily jump out to us. And the parties are clearly defined. God and Adam. Clearly laid out in the Scripture. The promises. Moses records, he says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and, and rule the earth. And they would have gotten, hey, these are blessings, but they sound like commands. And... They would have grasped that. They said, huh, okay, the blessings are tied up with the commands, and the commands, doing the commands, are tied up with the blessings that God brings. Got it, Lord. Got, got that part of the, the covenant. And the conditions. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Got the condition, Lord. Penalty. It's death. Death is the penalty if, if you do. Standard standard treaty and then there was a covenant sign or if you will a sacrament which was the tree of life if you do all these things and the covenant is ratified then you have access to the tree of life it's all there and it would have been just absolutely obvious to them where it tends not to be to us and then they would have seen man break the covenant we all know the story they would have seen man break the covenant and in their mind, they would have went, whoa, dude, not something you do. You don't break the covenant with the king. And they would have really grasped the crisis that Adam and Eve were in. They were standing on X marks the spot. And it was not going to be good for them. And they would have really had their minds wrapped around that. That would have been very visceral to them and very very close understanding because they dealt with kings quite often so they would have gotten that immediate danger in Genesis chapter 3 and they would have marveled I think at the grace you see because God didn't do what Pharaoh would have done did he he didn't do what Pharaoh would have done the axe did not immediately fall. They weren't wiped off the face of the earth. Creation wasn't rolled up in a ball and said, hey, I'm going to start over. Because that's not who this God is. And that's not how He works. This is an immutable God. This is a God who can't be thwarted. You know, we tend to, at least I do, I catch myself doing it. Sometimes I think, hey God, come on, it was a piece of fruit. You know, really, a piece of fruit. You know, but they also would have understand where we tend not to, that it's the little details when you're dealing with a king. If you go to a five-star hotel, it's the little details that make the hotel. The big things are important and must be done, but it's those little obediences. And to disobey in the little things equals rebellion. And they would have understood that and really had that all over us. Luke 16.10 tells us those who are faithful in a little are also faithful in much. Those who are dishonest in a little are also dishonest in much. And, and they would have had their minds 
wrapped around that. Well, as we continue to move forward, I think here's where our understanding begins to line up with them. We begin to see and we begin to feel and we begin to grasp what's going on with the overall text here. And we understand that sin damaged three things. It damaged three things. It damaged man's relationship to God. It damaged man's relationship with one another. We see this in the curses that are meted out in chapter 3. And it also damaged man's relationship with the earth or the planet. And those curses are meted out there in chapter 3. And I think most of us know and remember what they were. And we see in those curses, and all of us in this room can identify with it, man, you know, I've sat around many times and said, Adam, why would you blow it? You just messed it up for the rest of us. You know, here we are, and, and we all understand that that misery comes from that sin and that struggle between the people. And there will always be struggle in those texts, uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the, the curses that are meted out there. The offspring of God will always struggle with the offspring of Satan until the time that the final promise is brought through where he says he'll crush the serpent's head. And that's, that's going to happen. Misery in this life comes from Eve and Adam. And we also see another clear idea, and I think we would share this with them, that not only do I suffer in general because of my sin, but because of my sin, I must be a sinner. And the way that I know that I'm a sinner is I'm going to die. Because God said, in the day that you violate this covenant, you will surely die. It didn't happen immediately, but it does come to pass. And it comes to us. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin entered, came into the world through one man, and death by sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And if you ever doubt, you know, most people will try to argue with you, hey, my good deeds will outweigh my bad. We're all still going to make that passage. We're all still going to die because each of us are sinners. And here's where I think that things diverge. Where we have a more complete understanding than they did. I think that it's kind of like driving up a mountain. Uh, has anybody ever been to the top of a mountain, driven, driven up? Most, so, you know, while you're down in the valley, you've got an hour's worth of driving, and you're going back and forth, and trees are all around you, and you can't see anything, and finally you make it to the top, and you get to the overlook, and you put your coins in the big binoculars, and you look back over where you came, and you can go, oh, I see, yeah, I see why the road took a left, because there was a cliff there. Or there was a big rock, or there was an ocean. I can look back, and you and I, this is the advantage that we have looking back over this text this morning as we look back. And as we look back on the covenant, we went through the covenant, and we didn't take a lot of time to go through God's response, but I think we all know God's response to Adam. He cursed the earth to Eve. Uh, he said she and her husband would be fighting most of the time, and that he would. Uh, increase the pain in her childbirth. 
And then the serpent, he just flat out cursed and said, there's coming one that's going to crush your head. It's going to happen. Stand by. And as we look back on the covenant and God's response to mankind's failure, we have the advantage of more revelation. And we see at least four things in this text. And here's where I want to zero in this morning. So that was the intro. All right? (laughs) It was long. But these four things, I think, lie in the text, and they apply to us today, and there's something that we can get a hold of and grab today and use today. And this is in an ancient, ancient text in the very first part of the Bible where it's written. But I think as we look at the text and the temptation of Adam and Eve, we see four things. First thing is, left to our own wills, we blow it. Left to the freedom of our own wills, we blow it. Adam and Eve had perfect free will. You and I don't. But left to the freedom of our wills, we blow it. And we can fall prey to something as absurd as a talking snake. We can fall prey to something as absurd as a talking snake. Now, before we get down on Eve too much, we need to be a little careful Uh, Because the same is for us. Let me read you a passage out of James. And it comes uh, from James chapter 1. And it says, uh, James chapter 1, uh, 14 and 15. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We all sin. We all have a terminal appointment because we sin. And we all fail over stupid stuff. I fail a lot over my mouth or my temper. You know, some people, some of you fail over different things. Other things trip you up. But we all sin and we all stand in the exact same place that Adam and Eve are standing or were standing when they broke the covenant. We stand right there. And left to our own wills, Part B of that is that Satan will take us down every time. Don't get cocky if left to our own wills. Now notice I didn't say with the power of God. I said left to our own wills. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. He'll defeat us every time, just like Adam. Adam willfully sinned. Eve got deceived, but Adam willfully did it. Satan took him down by proxy which means he was dumber than Eve in that sense. All right, right. number two. God's promise to man's... or God's response to man's failure puts on display His long-suffering in this covenant and in God's response to it. Instead of whacking them off at the knees, we see God's long-suffering. God is willing to put up with a lot of things in this world for a long time. I like this uh, passage. I'm going to read it to you. I'm I'm a big, big advocate of reading the Scripture because I'm not too bright. And uh, 34, I think it's Exodus 34. Yeah, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Let me read that to you. And this is when God is passing before Moses. And I call this the resume of the Lord. And this is the Lord describing Himself, not a man describing the Lord. This is the Lord describing 
Himself when He puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes before. It says, The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh-oh. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's a time, even though God is long-suffering, He still must punish sin because He's holy and righteous. Again, we face death and eternal punishment because of that. Because we sin. We are cursed. Number three, though our lives may be tough because of sin, we can have hope. We can have hope. Because God promises a Savior right from the very beginning of the book. It doesn't happen midway through. You know, there's a, right from the very beginning, God promises a Savior. God promises hope to us. And we can have hope. And this Savior is going to deal with our problems. And Christ... Let's look at Galatians 3.13. I want to go there very quickly. Um, as soon as I can find it. Um, I think it's right in front of Ephesians. That's why I remember Gentiles eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We're cursed, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So this Savior is going to deal with our sin, with our curse. He's going to come and He's going to save us from our sin. The other thing this Savior is going to do, we need this Savior because we need somebody to deal with Satan. We need somebody to deal with the great tempter. And in Revelations 20, verse 10, that's exactly what the Bible records that eventually happens to Satan. It says he's taken and he's thrown in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur uh, forever and ever. And no more is he going to be able to tempt us. This promise in the book of Genesis is going to pass all the way through time until that's executed. And we're not only going to be saved from sin, but we're going to be saved from the power of the serpent. And number four, this displays the immutability of God. The immutability of God. Immutability is just like can't be thwarted. Can't change His will. He knows what's going to happen from the beginning and the end. And I would like to read a couple verses out of chapter 46 for you. God says this. It's God's challenge to us. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Remember this, verse 8 and 9. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Satan cannot thwart the Lord. He cannot thwart the purpose nor the promise of God, no matter what happens. He's dealt with. He's dealt with in Christ. Sin, my sin, your sin, the whole sin of the congregation, the sin of this nation, the sin of all people in the world cannot thwart the promise of God. It can't happen. And situations, no matter what happens, we get wrapped up in all kinds of stuff and we say, God, I just can't believe that You can help me here. Well, let me take you to Romans chapter 8. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Verse 20 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, which You, Father, have promised to us. And if you're a follower of Christ, you can rest assured in that. You can see that this promise, this covenant that comes all the way from from Genesis to now, that God is going to bring to pass. And you can have great joy in that. And great assurance in that. Philippians 1.6 tells us that uh, uh, Paul says that God will complete what He started in you. He'll bring it to pass on the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you're a follower of Christ, you can rest in that. But if you're not, what if you're not a follower of Christ? Then you don't have this assurance, do you? But Christ says you can have it. And I want to read you two more Scriptures in closing here. These relate all the way back to this covenant. It comes from John chapter 6, verse 37 and 40. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever, listen carefully, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Ever. This immutable God says that I will never cast you out. The one whose purposes cannot be thwarted, I will never cast you out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. None of us can slip through His fingers, and you can be part of that. That I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will, not maybe, I will raise Him up on the last day. And John 10 tells us, and this is our last Scripture, John 10.27 says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Because God is who He is and has done what He did right in the very beginning. Right at the very fall of man. Because He is who He is. We have a sure and a steadfast rescue from Satan. We have a sure and a steadfast rescue from sin. And we have a sure and a steadfast rescue from death. This is the immutable God who does not change.
Will you put your faith in Him and will you trust in Him? Not just as a non-believer, but as a believer. Let's pray. Father, Your Word stands forever. It's eternal. And Your promises are eternal. And no one can turn them aside. And We wrestle so much with this. We see the sin, the fall, everything around us, and we lose our trust. We become kind of like Peter did in, in looking somewhere else instead of Christ. And I pray that You would take this text, this very first covenant that You made with Adam and with whom He broke, and the promises that come out of that, the promises of a Savior as we look back. And we know this is Christ. And that You would make Yourself real to us and stamp it on our hearts. And that we would have complete trust and rest in You and knowing that You bring to pass what You'll bring to pass and what You say. Father, I pray for this church also that You would grant them a pastor and that You would bring the man to them as they began to, to seek who will love them and, and who will carry out Your will for this church. And even some here under the sound of my voice may be thinking, yeah, we're, we're just not doing well. But Lord, if You've put this church here, and I believe You have, Your, your promises and Your will is immutable there. And we pray that You would strengthen and let people put their faith in You and trust and be about the business of the Lord. Lord, may You be honored. May Your name be glorified in all that we do and say and think. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.